Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. I'm going back to medieval times. Okay, well, part history, part fantasy, part romance. My book today is a curious blend of the real and magical. It's The Book of Whispers. And the author is Kimberly Starr. So, Kimberly, welcome to 3CR. Thanks, David. Thanks for having me. Now, let's start with the real where this book is concerned. We're on crusade in the medieval age. What's prompted the fascination and interest with this period? Well, I've always been interested in medieval history since I was a school child. I studied medieval literature at uni. And then when I was in Turkey a few years ago, I became interested in the stories of civilizations meeting and when Europeans and the Middle East were in various contact times. So the First Crusade became of interest to me. And this actually historically follows the First Crusade. and you've, you've kept sort of that historical accuracy? It does, it does. I worked really hard on, get it, on keeping the historical details correct. The story takes place over the length of time it took the Crusaders to leave. My character leaves from Italy, well, from modern-day Italy, and it takes place over the time it took him and his family and his whole town, basically, to get to Jerusalem. And the other fascinating thing is it's based on real people that existed back in that day. Some of them are. My main characters are purely imaginary, but there are real historical characters who walk through the pages as well. The Emperor of Constantinople is a real character. The leaders of the Crusades are real characters. But there seems to be a fascination with the medieval. You'd learn as a, learn about it as a child and all of the sort of lifestyle. How do you account for the, the fascination people have for it? I think it's a it's a time period that is almost now. We kind of imagine that we can see these people in their art and in their writing and they're like us, but they're also mysteriously different. We don't see them in full 3D, I don't think, and we there's that dif- there's that conflict between them being a little bit enough like us that we can imagine them, but also very, very different. Well, they've been sanitised in the pages of history books in some ways. They have, uh, they have. Well, the characters in here, however, are a bit more manipulative and uh, evil, yeah. well, as well as good. Well, I enjoyed going through, uh, it was a time of history before there was printed word, but there were texts, there were letters that people wrote when they were on crusade that are available now for people to read. And that was a really interesting part of the research that I went into for this. But certainly, and that led to some interesting characters. We mentioned um, historical characters. One was Raymond, who was one of the leaders, who was a religious leader of the crusade and yet famously called monoculus, which means one eye, because he had lost his eye in a brawl in a church in Jerusalem. (laughs) Good place to have a brawl, the murder in the cathedral and all of this sort of thing. So there's that, that real aspect of what's going on and it's based in truth but then we have fantasy our hero Luca who we're going to come back to sees demons 
So the opening of the book, Luca, Luca, Master Luca, Saluca, the demon knows my name. Returning from a morning ride, I pull hard on my reins, dread surging through me. The creature babbles, bizarre sounds, halfway between coughing and words. His repeated Luca is all I understand. From the side of the stable, the spindly, scaly demon pulls away from the pitchfork it's tethered to towards me. I don't often see their leathery sheen so clearly. It takes energy for one of them to become visible to me. This demon is excited and fully formed. Its angular wings and sharp talons look as real as the stable door behind it. I've never heard it read with such drama. (laughs) Thank you. Well, well, thank you for writing it. But the fantastical notion of demons, how fantastical was it back then? Well, one, we were talking about how they were like us and not like us. One of the ways they were not like us was uh, their, their worldview. People thought they lived in a mid-plane. There were demons, there were angels. They didn't un- have our understanding of science. So when things were, went wrong, when things were strange, they thought demonic influences were at work. Well, you've, you've actually got a reference there to Dante's Inferno at the very uh, beginning of the book. As soon as any soul becomes a traitor, as I have been, a demon takes its body and keeps that body in his power. And that was written back in 1318. So that signifies right. the That's sort of right. belief they had. They Certainly. They were, demons were part of real life to people. So, yes, and... That's how they accounted for some of what was going on. Uh, So that's part of the fantasy. And the demons are attached almost virtually to every object. The demons are attached to valuable objects. And the reason they're attached to valuable objects is when people left their European homes to go on the First Crusade, they took these objects with them. So they took all the their families gold and silver and they took religious relics so the demons in my story have a reason why they want to get to Jerusalem so they are attached they don't have physical bodies they need something physical to travel with so they become attached to valuable objects that people won't lose so in many ways it's real or was real for the people and characters back then well it wasn't real for them to see demons but it was certainly real for them to To think that they existed yeah And, and they were illuminated in manuscript or... or They were. ...painted in the illuminated manuscript, I should say. Which brings us then to a manuscript of sorts, the actual book of Whispers. And this is one of the things that, in some ways, is compelling the plot. You've got the crusade that's taking place, so there's the sort of action and the path to Jerusalem, but the book of Whispers actually almost reads backwards in some ways, predicts what's going to happen and can change. But it gives some very sage advice. Jan, if you want to know how to get rid of a demon, listen to this. To unmask a demon in disguise, use ginger to expose its eyes. Red ribbon next will make it halt. Sprinkle its silver skin with salt. Then cinnamon, nettle, apple seeds will end the shadow that it needs. Mugwort, plantain, chamomile, remove from it the skill of guile. A mirror then completes the matter. Trap the mask and watch it shatter. Beware. With no true life no real thing dies but it's powerless without disguise you can learn some fascinating things from books that took me ages to write that poet that that the the rhymes took me probably longer to write than some of the chapters (laughs) but how significant i mean 
the significance of books back mm. in that day? Well, books were very, very valuable, very, very rare. Not many people could read. Fewer people could write. Fewer people, again, had access to the materials that it took to write. So the book is itself one of the valuable things that is on its way to Jerusalem and is a family heirloom for Luca. Well, yes, it contains the family history or mm. and the family future. That's right. In many ways. Yes. So, and yes, the, the significance of books back in that day, I mean, just in the beginning of the Bible, in the beginning was the word and the word mm. sort of thing. So that, that power, and it was in many ways controlled by the churches. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, there are many legends where words have power and putting words together in a certain way has power and writing them down has power. It's all always been regarded as quite mystical. Now, the characters, therefore, Luca and Suzanne, Luca Falcone. Mm -hmm. What can you tell me about him? Well, Luca is a young Italian knight, and in the generation where he grew up, knights were trained to, to fight and went around from family to family learning the skills of fighting on horseback, learning... Um, how to use various instruments, the swords that, that turn up in the text. And there were a lot of minor skirmishes that were always going on in Italy, towns that were fighting each other, basically because that's what the young men were taught to do and they wanted to do it. But here's the go. Mm. Uh, Luca's father doesn't want him to go on crusade. Luca's father, no, Luca's father has also read the book. So, he so knows. Luca, Luca's father knows some of the things that can go wrong and he also has a because he's read the book, he has a deeper understanding of the implications of this journey than anybody else does. But so he's been to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem before the Crusade was a recent Muslim conquest, but a place where mosques and churches were found side by side. And yet in, in Europe, they were told we have to go and claim it back. So, yeah. Well, that sort of uh, makes us leap into the present day yes. and the sort of significance of the Crusades. We've sort of left out Suzanne, but I think this that's is all a, right. a... That's all right. Thank you. Uh, we'll get onto this topic because it's one that fascinates me. You're talking about something that occurred centuries ago, but its impact and influence is still being felt? I th very much so. Uh, when I first got the idea for the book was back in 2011 when I was in Turkey and a couple of years before that I had been in Egypt. There, it's, it's hard to... It's hard to remember now just how positive people felt about the the spring. Remember the Middle Eastern mm. spring and because yeah. things have gone so badly since then. But... While I was writing it, that hope was going away and I was very aware of the clash of cultures going on between Western values and between Middle Eastern values again, the way they take place in the world of my story, which is, which is thousands and thousands of people, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people from Western Europe engaging on a mass migration right through modern-day Syria and right through Lebanon and the places that we associate with contemporary conflict. But... That well, the conflict was the conflict today generated by the actions of the Crusades. There are accounts of Crusaders uh, going through villages and blood ankle deep. Yeah, there are, and of Crusaders killing everybody and then um, starving, so burying bodies and then having to dig them up and eating them, like the cannibal stories. They're absolutely horrific, absolutely horrifying stories that equal 
equal horror that, that is going on now. But I think it's too simple to say that what's happening now is caused by what happened before because I think that takes responsibility away from the people who are making choices and who are making decisions now. Uh, certainly the roots of what's happening now is in conflict that goes back a long, long way. But we have to believe on some level and and. You know, when I write a story like this that has characters who love each other and characters who have hope for the future and characters who want to end this conflict, what I want to say to people today is, yes, it's related. These cultures have been in conflict for a long time, but you can make choices that can make a difference. Well, as you say, before the Crusades, Christian, Muslim... Uh, Jewish living side by side, That's practicing right. the religion. Somewhere right. along the line, the sort of monotheistic, my God is right, has entered the scene and has damaged everybody. Yeah. So yeah. It's, it's, it's a real worry. Um, so really, um, you've got also then uh, works of Buddha, which we were talking about off stage, that intermingling of ideas from around the world. Well, it is. When my characters go through Constantinople, which is modern-day Istanbul, which is the emperor who invited uh, Europeans to come and save him from the Turks, at which point they decided to go and save Jerusalem as well, uh, Istanbul, Constantinople then was a thriving city and Euthymius the Illuminator had translated the wisdom of Balava, which we know as Buddhist sayings, into Latin, and it was available there at the time. And there was one I took mm. for uh, Greek philosophy, the story of the elephant. Yeah, and now I'm wondering about that. <laughs> wondering? I'm wondering where it came from. Where it, well, it's been so used. Mm. Um, I came across it in um, a sort of educational context. Yes. And uh, the international baccalaureate and, and the sort of uh, reasoning and thinking uh, sort of scenario. Yep. But it's sort of almost untraceable, as are a lot of the thoughts and ideas that we come across in the Book of Whispers. Well, it's just the idea that everybody only sees part of the whole, isn't it? That people who, who only see the trunk of an elephant would describe a different creature from people who only see a leg or people who only see a tusk. Mm. So that's my message with the religions, is perhaps each religion is only seeing part of the whole. Is there a follow-up then? Uh, I don't know whether you're uh, working on another book or a sequel, but in terms of also then the Crusades, the thinking, because there were several Crusades. There were a few. There's My the characters would be a bit old by the time of the last one, so there were hundreds but of years there, later. There was also the children's crusade. <laughs> there was, there was. Like There's plenty of material there for stories, and I am playing around with what I can do with that at the moment. In fact, I'm going back to Jerusalem in five weeks and one of the things I'll be doing, we'll be looking for places and situations for new ideas. Because that's one thing I haven't done is read out some of the uh, settings, which are based on real They're settings. real places I went to. It was the most fun research imaginable because I love to travel. Well, Kimberly, thank you for coming in today. It's the Book of Whispers. Kimberly Starr is the author, and it's from Text Publishing. That's right. Thank you very much, Kimberly. Thank, thank you, Kimberly. And now I've got Fiona McIntosh. Who doesn't love chocolate? It's a sensual delight. But what has chocolate got in common with a conservative religion like the Quakers? The answer is in Fiona McIntosh's new book, The Chocolate Tin. Welcome back, Fiona. Lovely to be back with you, Jane. Thank you. So 
chocolate and Quakers? I know. I discovered this. I, I mean, chocolate is my sort of clinical addiction, and I, I don't know why it took so long to actually come around to writing the novel after um, 30 others, to, to, you know, to decide that chocolate should be the, the theme for the book. Um, when I started researching it, though, I discovered exactly this, that um, the, the empires that were built around chocolate, certainly in Britain, they were Quaker families. And um, I've come to truly admire them. I know during the Great War, they weren't admired because they were conscientious objectors. Um, But their sons and daughters died at the front too, um, because they sent them there to drive ambulances and and be stretcher bearers. and, And they suffered too, but they just wouldn't bear arms. The families themselves are intriguing. And um, I just, I love their whole take on life. You know, make a lot of money, share that money, make it make it help others. Um, and, the, you know, the Roundtrees, the Cadburys, the Fries, the Terries, all those great names of British chocolate um, did some amazing things for their workers. Um, healthcare, hospitals, education, homes, villages built just for them. It, it's It's wonderful when you read about it. Well, you did so much there. And, of course, we just jumped over the Great War. Of course, this is World War One, nineteen fifteen. 1915. So where have you set this book? Um, well, I, I actually, on behalf of all your listeners, I, I sort of hauled my reluctant body through <laughs> Switzerland and um, Brussels and Bruges and um, France looking for this story because I'm my modus operandi is not to plot I wait for the story to find me. And I really thought when I was writing about chocolate, I would go to the great chocolate houses of Europe. Um, But it was a chance um, visit to the magnificent city of York, um, Mm. where I realized, gosh, I know all these chocolate bars and this whole city is dedicated to chocolate. And of course, it was the headquarters for round trees and fries and and terries. And um, so that became the setting for me. So. What the name, the title of the book, because this is also something that that came out mm. of York mm. and the chocolate mm. companies, the chocolate tin. Yes, it was a, a, a real surprise to me because I didn't know what I was going to write about other than it would be based around chocolate. And I went searching for the story and found it in the museum um, in York. Um, there was this beautiful, really beautiful little tin, shiny brass, um, painted in vivid colours of the king and the allied flags. And I read that this was the chocolate tin that was sent to every um, soldier, every person in the military at the front um, in 1915. And I imagined that superb tin in all its glory and shininess arriving into the filthy, um, flea-ridden, pest-ridden, death-ridden trenches with mustard gas and artillery and and just... um, maudlin and depression and this arrives but a book by fiona mackintosh wouldn't be maudlin it would always have a very strong female lead and we have that with uh, alexander frobisher and this is a woman pushing the barriers she's got new hair she wears lipstick she calls her father dad yes and and (laughs) look how about reading us a little bit about her parents intention for her, her mother Minerva and dad. Yeah, this is uh, really at the beginning. This is how we meet Alex in the middle of all this sort of um, 
fractiousness with her parents. So Alex tried not to hear the clear dismissal. Give me a chance, Dad. I think I can build a career for myself. Be a woman of independent means. Career? Are you hearing yourself, Alex? Minerva demanded. Because you sound deluded. Women don't have careers, for heaven's sake. This may be 1915 and you may well have modern ideas, but your job is to support your husband. You're going to be the wife of an important man one way or another and a mother to his children. We need to know your future is secure. That is your career as a Frobisher girl. We've never raised you in doubt of your duty, surely. Daughters from families such as ours have their part to play in the family's future. It's time to deliver on all your privileges and do your bit. Do your Mm. bit. Now, there's a lot about duty and doing your bit in this book, but... Alexander really wants to be involved with chocolate. Mm. And how is the woman going to do that? Especially since she has the big decision, six months after the war has finished, she must choose a husband. Yes, indeed. They leave her with no... um, I mean, they're happy to give her a lot of choice. So... Here they are, darling. You've got all these lovely suitors. They're all fine young men. So choose one. You know, or we'll choose one for you. Yes. And we're going to give you until six months after the war. The other thing that uh, York is central for is railways. Mm. And... A rail, the, the whole railway business brings Matthew Britton Jones to York. Now, he's a man of charm and strong social standing. What does he offer, Alexander? I think Matthew was a real surprise to me when he walked into the pages. Um, I sort of sensed, is this my villain? Um, but I sort of really mm. liked him. There was something utterly confoundingly charming about him. He's he's witty and he really, really likes Alex. But he's honest enough to say, I don't, I don't love you in the conventional sense and I know you, you don't love me mm. because we've only just met. But I tell you what, we're great friends and we hit it off so well. So why don't we, as we're both under pressure to get married, why don't we choose, choose to marry each other? And I'll give you freedoms and you give me the freedoms. And he also gives her the reason to get, you know, the ability to yes. get involved in the round tree area. Yeah. And it's here with when she's putting together one of the chocolate tins, she just sneaks in a little love note into one of the tins. <laughs> and um, I think it's also showing that she's a lot of romance is missing out of her own yeah. time. Yeah. So the tin moves from York to uh, France. Yes. And... We find that Tom Fletcher is sent the tin, a young boy, a young man from York, and then we jump three years, and the tin is found again. And who finds it this time? This time, the tin is found by um, Captain Harry Blake, who's part of the sweeping party that's driving back the Germans, but also marking where the fallen are. Um, and he finds Tom, who unfortunately did not make it through the war, and who also did, never got to open his tin. Yeah. Because Tom's a soulful kind of character, and whilst all the others were ripping open their chocolate, um, he was admiring it, and he died before he could actually enjoy it. And so the first person to read this mysterious note tucked in the back is Harry, and he rightfully presumes it's a, it's a note from Tom's sweetheart. So he decides to go up to York and meet the mother yeah. and tell the mother that the body was found yeah. and also try and find the sweetheart. And, and tell her that 
I found Tom and he's safe now because he wants to save any more heartbreak. And he also wants to say he was a hero and, you know, he died very bravely. He just wants to wrap it up. I mean, Harry's got this, um, he feels women are the great sufferers during war. And Mm. um, he's also going up there to use up some more time. You know, he knows he's got a duty back there and we won't tell what the duty is. But so it's three days that Harry and Alex get together and a lot happens and thanks to your research we learn about a lot of the changing attitudes and I thought this was fantastic you know we spoke a bit about the Quakers earlier Mm. but the Quakers had sent up a, a new hospital with views and walks and really good care and a responsibility to look after those with mental health issues yeah yeah now what else? If you, if you didn't go to the Quakers Mental Hospital, you ended the... up um, for any reason from being um, having a child out of wedlock to being difficult to live with. Can you believe you could be sectioned at Boothby um, Lunatic Asylum, which was the um, county asylum for for that region in the north? And I visited this place, and it was unbelievably spooky even now I mean it's a delicious looking building and if they maybe change it into a hotel or whatever you could you could see how it'd be a glorious Georgian pile to go to Mm. but it remains in manicured grounds and it's still there for um, health care but it was a terrible (gasps) place full of torture and you know chaining people to beds and you know very no vision mm. at all for these people it was just lock them up um, so thankfully along with our changes of attitudes in uh, mental illness we also have hopefully a change of attitudes with homosexuality yes and indeed. how what how was that perceived back in 1950 well i you know i this came up and bit me as well i wasn't expecting um this sort of secret to be unleashed into the story um in 1915, um, men could be imprisoned, even killed, for um, showing any tendency towards homosexuality. So it was something that was guarded very ferociously by someone who recognised in themselves that they preferred men to women. Um, and, you know, you, the very least that could happen to you if you were for court um, is to be sectioned. Oh, look, I think the worst one, I've, I've, this one horrified and me. And it's true. I know what you're going to say. It's true. Well, you you, you researched okay, it. Okay, well, I researched it, finding out how homosexuality was treated, and there was one particularly vile treatment that was to take the testicles from a dead man, um, remove the healthy testicles from the alive man who was showing any homosexual tendencies, and to replace the healthy testicles with the corpse's testicles no, I, in the hope that it would cure him of his uh, um, oh, horrific. Yes, his antisocial behaviour. Um, it is horrific, and uh, the thing about this story, I think, more than anything, is it's sort of playing with um, struggles that are still mm. ongoing today, um, and it's all about marriage versus um, ambition, uh, love versus duty and honour. And also this whole idea of modern thinking. But women are still struggling to this day with that juggle of motherhood and and also career and fulfilling their dreams. And 
as as free thinking as we are, there are still struggles with uh, people who don't fit the conventional mm. um, sexual box that we should. Apparently, um, they are still struggling against that, and so. Although we've come a long way, I mean, it's so much easier to be um, gay and 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 not feel in any way that you have to explain yourself in 2016. But back then, ferociously guarded secret. And this whole thing about family honour, mm. you know, and the class segregation. And, oh, golly, we're not missing that, are we? No. A quote Meanwhile, from- chocolate is melting all around this story. <laughs> a, a, a quote from Fiona McIntosh's book, The Chocolate Tin. Passion she felt for chocolate. Desire she felt for her ambition. Affection she felt for Matthew. Love for her family, but it's the lust that makes it a bit of a page turner. <laughs> yes, I do. I mean, I do love my leading men, and um, I love my strong women. I need always need a strong woman in a story. I can't can't be doing with too many weak women. So, you know, there's always that central woman in my story. But the men are so important to build um, to be credible and um, likable, even if they are the villains of the piece and. Harry is particularly um, likeable, I think. Oh, so do lustable, I. Lustable, if that's lustable. such a word. <laughs> Fiona McIntosh, always a delight to have you on the program to talk about your latest blockbuster. And I must say here that you've actually written a book about how to write a blockbuster. Indeed. And yeah. it's good of you to give away some of your skills in writing for that. Thank you. It was it was actually written as a sort of a handbook to go with the masterclass that I run um, mm-hmm. for the people who were leaving that after a week felt, okay, it's all very good whilst we're in the class, but now mm-hmm. I feel a bit frightened that you're cutting us loose. So I was going to hand them this book and say, no, I'm still with you. You just have to refer to the pages of this book. But um, Penguin Random House said, look, you know, there are lots of other writers out there that could benefit from this too. And so let's publish it and make it available. So that's thrilling, really. Oh, absolutely. Very generous of you. Thank you. So I've been speaking with Fiona McIntosh about her latest blockbuster, (laughs) The Chocolate Tin, and uh, published by Michael Joseph, which is a subsidiary of Penguin. Oh, Fiona, thanks again. Pleasure. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Jane.